Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. I'm Michael McCarthy. I'm Laura Hamill. And I'm Tessa Mashazik. And today we have with us the Chief Diversity Officer with Atlantic Health System, Armand Kinsey, who's also recently named one of the top 100 most influential diversity leaders in the country. So we're very excited to have Armand with us today. Hi, Armand. How are you today? I'm doing great, Tess. How are you? I'm doing great. So uh, I want to kick us off uh, first by asking, tell us a little bit about your role as a chief diversity officer. And, you know, what is your day-to-day, what kinds of uh, initiatives, activities, things that you do at Atlantic Health, Health System? Sure. Uh, so this role here at Atlantic is only three years old. Um, and I joined here coming from Kaiser in D.C. Um, and the one of the things that I was excited about was the opportunity to build the program. Uh, there were some really great things happening across the system at some of our different uh, hospitals, but there wasn't a, a link to everything to, to you know, draw everything together. So this was the first time that this office was um, a thing. You know, I'm the first chief diversity officer. This is the first time they had a diversity office. Um, so it's a great opportunity to, to pull everything together. So um, right now, it, it's just a matter of what are we doing specifically for patient care. That's one of our four pillars. We um, once I came in, I took a look at what was happening and decided to um, make sure that the existing um, programs that were happening that were productive that we were able to scale them across the system, um, and then try to bucket them in, into four key areas. So we focus on patient care, uh, team member experience, uh, community, and then supplier diversity. Um, and then under those four pillars, as you can imagine, there's a ton of, of things that are, are happening. Um, but those are some of the things we're focusing on today. No day is the same, as you know. <laughs> Everything, every day is new and a new challenge and something uh, that you didn't expect or plan for. Um, but that's what you get when your, your end product is people. You know, our, we know that our end product is another patient, another life. Um, so it, it's never the same day to day. So being agile is, is just part of the game here. So it, it brings some excitement every day. That's so interesting that the product is another life, that that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I'm curious that your responsibilities are touching every part of the organization. And I'm wondering what strategies do you feel are working that builds awareness for the importance of building a diverse workplace? One of the things I think, um, not at all to toot my own horn, but I've always been aware of is that anybody in a leadership position in diversity needs to be able to speak the language of their client. And I say that to say that my client could be the head of HR, it could be the head of finance, it could be the head of procurement, you know, all these different areas. I look at them as clients, as partners, as colleagues. Um, but I'm not solely responsible for diversity and inclusion for an 18,000 person organization. My job is that, you know, how can I influence 
um, how can I identify those champions so that they see the benefit of diversifying, of creating an inclusive environment for their specific departments or divisions. Uh, and then that's where you see the progress start happening. So, you know, the ability to speak finance, I think is important. You know, what's the importance of us, you know, diversifying our patient base? Um, what's their ROI on that? You know, how do we see more people re getting primary care physicians versus just using your medical center for the emergency room? And the ROI on that is so much greater than them just using the emergency room. So, you know, when you talk to finance people or things like that, you, I think you just need to be able to talk their speak. And I think nine times out of 10, they get what the strategy is because they understand the finances or they understand what it means to source using diverse suppliers or what's the benefit of bringing in diverse people to diversify your organization. So I think, you know, learning to, to have those conversations have been really beneficial. So Armand, you talked about team member experience being one of your four pillars. And obviously over the last two years with the global pandemic, I mean, healthcare, healthcare workers have been impacted really like no others. Um, so just really, I wondered your thoughts around what have you um, kind of focused on with regard to team member experience and burnout and retention? What are some of the, the initiatives you've taken? Great question, Laura. Um, you're right. You know, I I came in here in 2019, um, and as you just mentioned, the pandemic started and hitting hard in 2020. Um, and we sit in New Jersey, so you know, New York, New Jersey was hit pretty hard during that first initial wave, and nobody knew what to expect. So I had just completed our strategic plan. I was ready to go, start rolling out all these things, um, and then the pandemic hit, and we really had to pause and figure out what do we need to do just as a system to support our own team members as well as our patients. Um, and quite a bit of things started happening um, relative to diversity and inclusion, but we didn't think of it you know, at first. So just to give you an idea, we were working on getting information out as quickly as we could, you know, getting it from the CDC, getting it from you know, all kinds of regulatory agencies and then getting it out, not only to our own team members, but to the community. And there was a rate of about six, a six week lag time between when our um, Hispanic community members were receiving information um, to when it was available um, because it was primarily in English. Now the CDC of course has things on their website that is in Spanish, but our website at the time was only in English. So it was really difficult, of course, to keep that momentum going and get that information out. We did, in the midst of that, create a microsite for um, Spanish-speaking patients where we were translating things over. But as you can imagine, there's a lag in getting a document translated and then getting it posted. So the result of that is, is as of last week, we worked on the project for the last year and a half, and now we now have a Spanish website that's automated immediately. Um, and since then, we'll roll out other ones in different languages. Um, but some of the things that we learned from the pandemic, we're still continuing to this day to implement and look at innovation and things like that. But to go back to your question about resiliency and, and making sure our team members had what they needed, we were really focused on, of course, patient care, but ensuring that our team members felt that they were safe. Mm -hmm. And I think us helping them feel that they were safe and as much as we were all trying to understand the pandemic at the same time, the least we could do is make sure that they had masks and gowns and, and the proper equipment. 
And the team here, I can tell you, worked tirelessly to make sure that those things were happening to the point where we had some of our leadership team sewing masks on their own sewing machines. And because we just all we knew at the time was just to wear a mask, you know, regardless of what grade of mask it was. So it was just all hands on deck trying to make sure the staff was safe. Um, We did quite a bit of, um, you know, renting out hotel space for, for team members. Um, because a lot of team members were afraid to, you know, go home to their family and kids. So we wanted them, of course, to be able to get to work, but also feel like they weren't taking anything home to their family. Um, So just trying to meet them where they were and try to, you know, curve any kind of anxiety or anxiousness. Um, We brought in um, our EAP program, of course, um, to help support people there. So there was a lot of um, webinars happening um, so we, we, as much as people were busy, we still tried to make things available to them so that even on, you know, their quiet time on a break, um, we could help them meditate or whatever they needed to do to whatever they needed to kind of bring it down just a little before walking into that next patient room. Wow. Thank you. So Armand, a question I have is, you know, in your role as the chief diversity officer, a lot of, and you just spoke with Michael uh, about the way that you talk to other departments and are able to integrate your strategies around DNI into other areas of the hospital. How uh, do you feel the hospital does as far as Uh, being able to operationalize those values and to make those values, not just words on a wall, but things that people feel and um, experience every day, whether it's through the patient experience or through the employee experience, what are some things that you've done or some things that you hope to do in the future to, to bring those, those core values of the institution more to the experience of patients and employees? Yeah, I think we have to keep it front of mind and, in order to do that, we all have to speak that same converse, that same language and have those same conversations. Uh, one of the things that happened that kind of heightened it and gave me a little um, edge among some other organizations is my second year here, um, our CEO decided that um, diversity and inclusion need to be one of our core priorities for the year. So if you can imagine coming into an organization and year two, the, the, one of the CEO priorities is diversity and inclusion, recruitment and retention. So it's, again, one of those things that it no longer is viewed as my, just solely my responsibility, you know, but, you know, that nurse manager that is thinking about, you know, hiring, she needs to now think about that. And, and how does that, you know, cascade down to her own priorities? So I really think it was a, a great advantage for me to come in and have that happen um, because now people are understanding what that means. So as you know, Tess, I always talk about diversity and inclusion in two different conversations because it's one thing to diversify your organization and it's another thing to be inclusive and make those folks feel engaged. Um, So engagement is part of the big conversation right now. So, you know, we can come in and be as diverse as we want without that engagement, people are going to walk out the back door. So part of our um, goal right now is to look at our um, patient satisfaction surveys you know, what does those scores look like? And, and, you know, what are the challenges that we're facing around patient care? And do our patients feel like they're heard and respected when they come in the organization? Uh, we're working a lot right now with our um, systems, our EPIC system and others. Um, we've increased our sexual orientation, gender identity information that's collected in the system. 
Um, we're adding pronouns um, into the system. So any those small things matter to patients um, and then be able to understand that they're heard and respected when they walk in the door. And the same thing for our team members. Um, you know, we're looking at policies. You know, you, you often hear people talk about uh, systemic racism in organizations or bias in the organization. And it's one thing to do programs. And I do think programs and celebratory events are important. Um, but if you want to eradicate the, the challenges, the core challenges, I think you have to look at policy, policy and behaviors and procedures. And those are some of the things that we're looking at now, ensuring that those things are at the fundamental, you know, everybody understands this is the basis of why we exist. And then the other celebratory events and practices and, and the business resource groups can be built upon those. Um, but it's difficult when you don't have the policy to support the behaviors and the competencies that you really want to drive towards. So if I can ask a quick follow-up to what you just said, because you mentioned something that I think for our audience, sometimes they, they there's it's hard to make that connection with the importance of collecting the data. And then what is the outcomes or how does that impact the employee experience or engagement for employees? So can you talk maybe just a little bit specifically around the why is it important that you're collecting that level of data on patients beyond the fact that they are understanding that you're acknowledging them in a, their identity in a certain way, but how does that help the hospital um, when you collect that level of data on the people that you're serving? At the, the, the one of the core answers is, are we providing the right services? So, you know, we, if we don't collect that data, we don't know what our, our patient base looks like. Um, you know, what language do they speak? You know, some of those things are regulated in the Affordable Care Act that we have to collect, you know, the preferred language um, spoke, written and spoken. Um, you know, sexual orientation is one that we started collecting, you know, race and ethnicity. So those things I think are important just because we need to know, and it was so impactful and helpful during the pandemic. Um, us collecting that data helped us understand where do we need, where and how do we disseminate information? Where and how do we set up a, a vaccine clinic? Um, do we need to send a Spanish speaking nurse to this location? So without collecting that data and knowing it, you know, by zip code, by, by street level, um, we don't know. So, you know, it creates another barrier for if we don't know that. So it became very helpful. Um, and we've actually ramped it up since the pandemics. We know there, there were gaps in what we were collecting, um, but it's been so useful just to collect that and then take action on it immediately. And it not just, you know, sit in a database somewhere, but take immediate action. Um, and it's proven really successful for us. Armand, I'm so curious about your career journey. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of how you got here and maybe some of the pivotal points along the way? Sure. Um, so it's interesting because I didn't start out being, you know, a chief diversity officer. I don't even know if this was a thing when I was in college. Um, so, you know, I actually thought I would be an actor on, on, in Hollywood somewhere. That was one of my interests. So I, I ma majored in theater and English in, in college. Um, and then out of college, I did some work in theater in the Philadelphia area. Um, and then, of course, I needed to make some money. So I, I went on to be um, a stockbroker and that, thought that was interesting and fun and um, all that stuff. So I had a great opportunity and I worked in financial services for about seven years. Um, and it was fun, exciting, but 
also high energy and very stressful sometimes. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, I'll go to healthcare administration. That's not as stressful. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was wrong. Um, but I started, um, I got into the diversity world because um, it was one of those, I, I was started in financial services outside of Philadelphia and then moved to Charlotte to help them open up an office there. And it became my, you know, other duties as assigned um, kind of thing. And, and I took a liking to it. And then when I, I took the opportunity to leave Charlotte and go back to Philadelphia, and I took a, a role at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as their associate director of DNI. Um, so that was my collaboration of DNI and healthcare, and had a great time there. CHOP is, as you know, one of the number the number one hosp children's hospital in the country. And it was, I learned a lot coming into healthcare, great mentors there. Um, and I was there for about six years when I had the opportunity to go to, over to the consulting side of, of DNI. And I took that opportunity. Um, and I stayed there and you know, went to uh, Corn Ferry. And that's where I met Tessa. And, mm. um, but as you know, uh, for me personally, consulting is, is a great opportunity, just not my sweet spot. My sweet spot comes in when I can see the needle move and unless you have a long-term relationship with a client in consulting, you're not quite sure. You're hoping you're making an impact, but you're, you know, you leave that client and you're on the next flight to the next client and you're crossing your fingers, hoping what you just did impacted their culture. Um, so after about six or seven years in that space, I decided to go back into a company uh, and I ended up at Kaiser Permanente in Washington, D.C. Um, as their uh, chief diversity officer. Um, great organization. I can't say enough great things about Kaiser and the, the people that are there. Um, learned a lot. It was the, the first time I was in a healthcare system that was a national healthcare system. Um, so, which is a, a different kind of organization than when you're working with you know, local or regional healthcare systems. Um, so, looking at diversity and inclusion from a national perspective, and you know what we rolled out did not always make sense um, for all regions. So being able to be agile and, and you know make what what worked for San Francisco may not always work for the Washington D.C. office, and the patient population is different. All those things. So being able to flex was a, a big part of that. Um, and then after Kaiser, um, I got the opportunity to come here to Atlantic Health System uh, three years ago. Um, and as I said, the, the thing that excited me the most, what, most was the, the ability to build the program. Yeah, um, yeah. And th that's what we're doing now. And, you know, in retrospect, there were some personal things, I think, along the way that kind of led me to DNI, um, probably unconsciously. Um, I lost my mother when I was a sophomore in college, and um, she died of heart failure. But she was in a hospital for probably about a month in a coma. Um, and she went to a local hospital in Philadelphia. Um, and if you know anything about Philadelphia, there's some great hospitals in Philadelphia. Um, and she, but she went to a community hospital um, and I wasn't happy with that. Um, I was trying to hopefully get her stable enough to be transferred to one of the major hospitals. Um, some parts of her care that, that happened that you know, I think could have been better. Um, people but it probably could have been a little bit more attentive. Um, could I prove that it was negligence or disparities? I couldn't, you know, at the time I was 20 years old, so I didn't know much about a disparity or, or much about healthcare. Um, but in retrospect, what I've learned now is that I, I do think they did, misstepped on a few things. That community hospital is now closed. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I, I, you know, think about somebody coming into our hospital and we do have a few community hospitals and never, ever do I want somebody to leave thinking that we've could have done something different or better um, and, you know, not done our best to, to save or take care of their loved one. So that's a little like my internal motivation to make sure that, you know, as we're growing and as we're taking care of patients that we don't lose the fundamental part of what we do. And that's taking care of people. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's tough. It's really tough. Well, Armand, I, because I do know you, I know you have another amazing story that's focused on in, creating an inclusive environment. Um, and it has to do with, with when you were at CHOP and um, something happened with the, I think it was the Amish community. Can you tell yes. that story? Because I think it's, I think what what's so important about that story is that it really does emphasize the importance of creating systems if you want to create an engaged, inclusive community, um, that you need those systems in place. So I would love for you to tell that story. Yeah, this was, and I forget the year, but it was, um, there was a shooting at an Amish school in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And um, it was early in the morning. I think I probably just got into the office. Um, And then, you know, the words started circulating about the school shooting. And we heard that we might get a couple patients um, at at our hospital. Um, so, you know, we're one of those organizations that we did diversity inclusion inclu- diversity and inclusion education. Um, we talked about it at the leadership level. Um, everybody went through some sort of training, and you just never know what sinks into people when they leave your training. You know, we always hear about you know people lose, you know, more than 50% of what you just taught them as soon as they walk out the room. So you, you hope the things that you, you do sink in. Um, so we started getting, I think we got a few patients uh, via helicopter. Um, and if you know much about the Amish community, you know, there's some things that they won't do, you know, get on elevators. Um, some don't drive cars. Um, they, you know, their, their diet is of a certain uh, pedigree. They, they only eat certain things. So, you know, as the family started arriving, it's it's a matter of, you know, what happens with the horse and buggy when that shows up to our inner city uh, hospital? Um, what happens when they need to get on an elevator? So it was just re- really, really heartwarming because, you know, that security, that parking lot attendant was prepared and knew what to do because the only goal at that point was to make sure that family got bedside to that child. We'll figure out what to do with everything else. Um, getting in the elevator, making sure that that, that patient or that family member had um, access to the stairwell because the ele- they wouldn't get on the elevator. Um, ensuring that our food and nutrition team had an idea of what they might want to eat um, because they might not eat what was on the, on the menu for the day in the cafeteria. So it was just one of those real life examples of um, you know, how do we react to these emergency situations? Um, because Michael, to your point earlier, it, it's it's not whether or not we sell a blue or red car um, or a, a large or a small sweatshirt. It's a matter of a person is our end user. And how do we make sure that they feel like we're doing our absolute best regardless of culture and all these other things? I, I say regardless of, but also in might be mindful of culture and all those other things. So it, it was really one of those examples that are probably few in my life where I've like lived a case study um, and you've actually seen it play out. Um, 
And by the way, it was early in the morning. So the news media starts showing up at the hospital. So now we got to get PR and marketing involved. So it was just one of those situations where every part of the organization had to be involved um, outside of just our clinical care teams. That's a great story. And I'm, I'm curious, I wanted to ask about training questions now. Do you have any tips of what you've done in your own training programs that have just worked really well that you'd be willing to share with our audience? I think infusion is the key. So one of the things that um, I'm not interested in is having a, you know, 10 courses of diversity inclusion training that's separate from everything else. So if we're looking at building leaders, we don't need you to be great in accounting and finance and communication. Oh, and by the way, can you focus on diversity and inclusion? We need your leadership skills to be inclusive. We need your thoughts around hiring and recruiting to be diversity and inclusion thoughts. So it's really around how do we take our existing current curriculum um, and any curriculum that we're developing and make sure we just infuse diversity and inclusion into that. Nobody, you know, as fast paced as we all are, nobody wants to feel like, oh, I have to do this other thing around diversity and inclusion. <laughs> They want to be able to go to a leadership course. And by the way, when they come out, they're like, I, I didn't, that's a new lens for me. I didn't, I didn't think of that before, but it should all be baked into what we're currently working on. And I think that's true for not just education, but all parts of, of DNI. It's, it's not a standalone program. It's how do we infuse it into what we're already doing? I love that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. And just to piggyback on that, supplier diversity is another one of those. So we don't want to source, you know, suppliers and then source diversity suppliers separately. It's how do we, when we're building a building, um, it might not be the, the primary contractor that builds the building, but can we afford to hire a veteran-owned company that can be the painter or a woman-owned company that's going to lay the carpet? So like, how do we look at it more uh, broadly and make sure that we're, where we're spending dollars um, that we're spending it in minority, veteran, LGBTQ-owned companies um, that can benefit not only from the business, but locally is even better. When you have that local spin, um, and we're starting to track that. So we order lunch quite often, you know, for lunch meetings, and I'm sure we all do, but is it always the big box stores that we need to order from? You know, could it be the, the mom and pop diner down the street that now that we order from them once a quarter, they can afford, now afford health insurance for their team? So, you know, those minor things, you know, you never know the ripple effect of what supplier diversity could do, let alone when it's that, you know, really focused local spin. That's amazing, Armand. So along those same lines, as we come out of the pandemic, you know, so you mentioned before the Atlantic Health System is 18,000 employees within the system. Okay, so an incredibly, a big, diverse workforce. And when you think about coming out of the pandemic, are there any initiatives around employee engagement that you can share or anything that you're really focused on at this point? And, and do you feel like we're coming out? Like, does your organization feel like we're coming out of the pandemic? <laughs> or do you, you know, do you feel as a hospital where we still got a little ways to go before we're going to be on the other side of it? Um, as you can imagine, there's mixed opinions. Um, I think most of us after two years of a pandemic want to be hopeful that we are coming out on the other side. Um, but of course, we're constantly looking at the science and the data and, you know, we're seeing what's happening in Europe right now, what's happening in China right now. So 
hopeful, but um, I think we're also excited now that we have therapeutics that could help um, if we get another surge. Um, you know, we read the, the news yesterday that Pfizer is going in for uh, uh, um, emergency authorization for a second booster. So I think we're trying to prepare now for if there's another surge, but at the same time, excited for this moment of just taking a breath <laughs> across the country for, for a moment at least. Um, so there's, you know, hope, hopeful that we're coming out of the other side, but just cautious as well. Um, and your other part of your question, Seth, I'm sorry. No, I was just wondering if there were any like exciting initiatives that you're working on right now that you can share. I'm not yeah, sure so if you can share or not, but. <laughs> there is, there's a few, absolutely. So Atlantic Health System is, is um, one of the uh, Fortune 100 great places to work. And that happens because of engagement. And a lot of what we used to do to keep our teams engaged, um, of course, we had to pause that during the last two years. So right now we're looking really at how do we get back to that and make sure that people feel valued, that they feel heard, um, you know, making sure that executives are rounding in the hospitals, um, getting out and, and hearing people. Um, getting back to our movie nights, you know, we're excited because we used to do uh, during the summer, we do a lot about three or four movie nights across the system and it's out in the park or in the baseball field and just get everybody out with their families. So things like that, you know, that go beyond the walls of the organization, um, I think are important. Um, we do turkey toss. It's uh, it sounds crazy, but it's probably one of my favorite things to do during the holidays. Every Thanksgiving, we give every team member the option of a turkey, ham, pie or a, a fruit basket, or they can donate it to a charity. Um, and we have all the executives and leaders out in the parking lot with lines of cars coming through, picking up turkeys. So it's, you know, those little things that, you know, just take their mind, especially the last two years, when you think about them trying to save lives and, oh, by the way, I forgot to get my turkey for Thanksgiving. And, you know, it's just something else to take off of their to-do list. Um, but, you know, those things like that, I think that help increase engagement. Um, will be things that we try to, you know, relook at and think how we can do better, different, bringing back some of our concierge services, things like that. Because, you know, we know that they spend a lot of time here in the hospitals and, you know, those small things that we can do to take that off of their to-do list, um, I think will be beneficial. We're look also continuing to look at um, uh, daycare services. So uh, we have three locations that have on-site daycare. So as we grow and some of those sites and locations that you can imagine are probably at capacity, but how do we keep making sure that those things are front of mind for us so that it eases the, the struggle and sometimes the challenges of our team members. I love all those examples, Armand, those are awesome. So as we end the podcast, we would really love for you to share anything regarding the business case or the human case really for hiring and managing diverse teams, um, things that you would want other companies, other people to understand about that. Sure, Laura. So, so the one thing I would say is that the talent is there. Um, you know, for people or organizations to say that they can't find something, mm -hmm. it's one of those, you know, nails on a, on a chalkboard for me because, uh, you know, it, it may take a little research, but the diverse talent is there. And we have to do better with where we're recruiting and sourcing from. Um, and I think organizations need to understand it may not look and feel like your traditional way of how you used to do it. Um, 
just one quick example of that is um, we have a, a chair of our cardiac uh, division in one of our hospitals who came to me and said, um, I want to work with Morehouse College and see if they have a cardiology, a cardiology fellow that can come stay with us and do rotation with us for a few months. Morehouse College, as you know, uh, HBCU, um, their medical school, they had two cardiac fellows. And we ended up getting one of those to rotate with us. And it wasn't by accident, but it was because we had intentional desire to open up our doors and make sure that people are exposed to us and that we gave people an opportunity. Morristown uh, Medical Center is the number one medical center in New Jersey. So to give that opportunity to that student, he'll never forget that. But at the same time, we reap the benefits of creating a relationship with that school and that particular student. So, you know, the talent is there. We have to do better with going after it. Um, and then once we get it, do a great job with keeping them engaged and making sure that they stay. Retention is a huge component of what we need to focus on. Um, so we can, you know, not have that revolving door, but we can really benefit from having people here long-term. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, this was amazing, Armand. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, a lot of important insights as it relates to the diversity and inclusion uh, elements of creating a, a happy, happy workplace, a positive workplace environment. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you for you the invitation. So much, I had a great time. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.